Good morning, everyone. It is a joy and a blessing to be able to share God's Word with you this morning. And it's good to see you all that are here and have been able to be part of uh, this service this morning. So um, before we get to the sermon, I just uh, want to say that these past few weeks have been just a real blessing and a joy for my family and I. Um, as we've been getting to know each and every one of you by name, and uh, we're, we're, we're grateful, truly grateful uh, to the Lord for just allowing us to be part of this church. It's a, it's a beautiful church, and so it's a, it's a joy and a, and a blessing to be able to serve here. All right, and, um, and lastly, I, I think I've got to say that you guys have, have done a great job of making us feel at home, so, so thank you. Thank you so much. All right, so now to to our sermon. So as we as we celebrate uh, Christmas, I thought it would be it would be fitting to reflect on a portion of Scripture that uh, that addresses this season in a in a very unique way, in a very unique way. So I want you to turn your Bibles to the book of um, the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John. And go to uh, chapter 1. Let's read verses 1 through 18. I want us to read the first 18 verses of the Gospel of John. But we'll only be studying verses 14 through the 18. John chapter 1, verse 1, says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was in the light of men, was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overtake it. There was a man having been sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. There was the true light which, coming into the world, enlightens everyone. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to what was his own, and those who were his own did not, did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of men, but of God. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as, the, as of the only begotten from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, saying, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has been ahead of me, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received in grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. 
Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for just the opportunity to gather together in this place. Thank you for my brothers and sisters who are able to be here this morning. And Lord, we recognize our, our need of you, our need for your word. And so for this reason, we ask that you give us eyes to see what is revealed in Scripture. Please, Lord, use a word your, this morning to encourage us, to instruct us, to convict us of sin, and comfort us for your glory. And it is in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now, the title of today's message is The Wonder of Christ's Birth. But perhaps a better title would be The Wonder of the Incarnation. And we'll find out why in the next few minutes. But as we get started, let me begin by posing a question to, to all of you. And the question is, what comes to mind when you hear the word Christmas or when you contemplate its meaning? What, what comes to your mind? And just take a few moments to think, think about that question. What's, what comes to mind when you think about the word Christmas or its meaning? Now, if I may dare to say, some of your answers, I think, might include thoughts of Christmas lights um, or snow or Santa Claus or festive gatherings. Others might associate Christmas with sweaters and Christmas carols or popular holiday songs. And interestingly, as we consider this question, we may find out that our thoughts might actually be resembling the scenes from a Christmas movie. Or that they may be echoing, perhaps, the lyrics of a familiar song, like, it's, like the song, It's a Wonderful Time of the Year. And I can, I can say that these are some of the things that might come to mind when you think about the word Christmas or its meaning. And because I'm sure that if I were to, because I'm, I'm sure that this is true, because if I were to read to you the lyrics from, from, a, from the Christmas songs that I just mentioned, I know that you will notice what the lyrics describe about Christmas, and then you will be able to see what I mean. So let's do a test, and I want you to participate with me, so let's, so here it is. It's the most wonderful time of the year. With the kids jingle belling and everyone telling you be of good cheer. There will be parties for hosting, marshmallows for toasting, and caroling out in the snow. And on and on it goes. But the point is that when we think about Christmas, there's a chance we might end up thinking about the things that are said in a Christmas song or things that we see in movies rather than Chris, what Christmas really is all about. And of course, these things are not necessarily sinful in and of themselves, but they're not the meaning of Christmas. Now, this observation simply highlights this. Simply highlights the, that the fact that there's this reality that of, of 
the influence I think our culture has had on our perception of Christmas. But for those of us with the more spiritual discernment, our answer to the question about Christmas will actually center on the birth of Christ. And of course, this is precisely what Christmas should be all about. So to, to bring our perception of Christmas more closely in line with Scripture, let's center our attention on the birth of Christ this morning. And specifically, I want us to focus um, our, our attention to this aspect of His incarnation. His incarnation. Not the place where He was born or the physical circumstances in which He was born, but the profound reality that He was in fact born. So let's meditate on this reality that God took on human form, the form of a man. And this, and this is the reason I, I, I said at the beginning of, of in, in the introduction that a better title for this message would be the wonder of the incarnation. So let's, so as we reflect on this profound event, my prayer is that this would actually lead us to worship and adoration of God as we contemplate this aspect of Christ earth amen so as we already read there in in john chapter 1 verse 14 and 18 this passage of scripture introduces us to the mystery of god taking on the form of a man the man jesus christ the second person of the trinity and in verses 4 14 through 18 we encounter four profound declarations about the incarnation of christ that encourage us to stand in awe at his birth. And we have a very simple uh, outline that you can see on the screens. So the first one we're going to look at is the incarnation of Christ. The second would be the testimony about Christ. Third, the grace of God in Christ and the explanation of God in Christ. But before we go to verse 14, let's try to understand what's happening here in the passage or the portion of scripture in John 14 through 18. Now, for this step, I want us to, to keep in mind a few things. First, we need to ask, what motivated the Apostle John to write this book? And I believe the under, understanding this question is crucial because it will help us understand and it will help our comprehension of God's intent in presenting verses 14 through 18. And as we read the Gospel of John, you find out that the primary purpose behind John's writing of this gospel itself was to declare that Jesus is the Son of God. And he accomplished this by giving testimony of who Christ really is, that he was God, and by showcasing the signs that Christ did. And of course, these signs were, par were intended to bear witness to Christ's divine nature. And part of John's ultimate goal was to, was to actually call people to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ by emphasizing this, the crucial reality that Jesus is God incarnate. How do we know that this is John's ultimate goal? Well, because he says it. John explicit, explicitly states this in chapter 20 and verse 30, where he says, Therefore, Many signs, many other signs Jesus also did in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, verse 31, 
But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And the last thing that I want you to keep in mind about the context of our passage is, is how John structured the book itself, how he wrote it. Verses 1 through 18 have actually rightly been considered the prologue of the book. This is the prologue. This is the part that provides the context for the rest of the, the Gospel of John. This is the part where the book, where the main characters and the subject of the narrative are introduced. And of course, in John's Gospel, the main character and subject of the book, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, thinking over verses 1, 18, 1 through 18 that we read a few moments ago, I, I, I like how some commentators have actually succinctly summarized this section, noting that in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, we learn about the eternality of Christ. In verses 3 and 5, the focus shifts to Christ's pre-incarnate work, followed by his rejections, his rejection in verses 9 through 11, his reception in verses 12 and 13, and ultimately his incarnation in verses 14 through 18. And here's where John introduces us to the first declaration about the incarnation that we're going to be looking at this morning. So the first point is the incarnation of Christ. Look at verse 14 with me. And it reads, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. Now, during this Christmas season, it's coming to see depictions of baby Jesus in a major. And intentionally, they, they, wanna, they want to remind us of Christ's birth. And I, I think I can agree with that. that that's, that's a good way to remind us of Christ's birth. But in fact, if a baby in a manger is meant to remind us of something, I believe it should be the mystery of the Incarnation. This profound reality, the profound reality of the eternal Son of God taking on the form of a man, without laying aside his divinity. And more than that, taking the form of a man, even that of a baby. Now, to what end? To what end? To the end that he, to be immersed himself, and to immerse himself in the midst of sinful humanity, and ultimately facing death, at their hands to pay the penalty for sin and to redeem a people for himself. This statement by itself becomes one of the most profound truths to ponder during these days. It actually invites us to be in awe of the mercy of God, a mercy he extended towards his people. So in this portion in, these, in verse 14, John introduces us to this incredible mystery by highlighting three aspects of the incarnation using three verbs. And the first verb that I want you to 
look at is the verb became. The word became. Verse 14, and the word became flesh. Now, in the context of this passage, the, the verb became signifies that, refers actually points to the fact that God was taking on human form, on a human body. But the implication would be that he did not, he, he did this without laying aside, aside his divinity. The verb even has this connotation of being born of a woman. And this means that the birth of Christ represents Emmanuel. God is literally and was literally with us. And this is exactly what had been prophesied, as a matter of fact, in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, where it says, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign, and behold, the young woman shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. God with us. And as, is, as if this isn't enough, John expresses this reality in an astonishing way, stating that it was the eternal Word who became flesh. And the Word that he's talking about here, the Logos in the original Greek, refers to God who created the world. This Logos is the same one that John mentioned at the beginning of the book, the creator of the heaven and the earth and everything that is in existence. We know that he's talking about God, the creator of the, heaven, of the world, who's taking a human form because John himself says it in verse 1 through 3. And he does not shy away from it. Read with me verses 1 through 2, 3. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God, all things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. And with those words, it's like John would be saying to us, this is the same God who in Genesis 1 created the heavens and the earth. By how? By his word. By saying, let there be light, and there was light. And so, brothers and sisters, this is the second person of the Trinity that we're talking about here. He was not, on, he was not only with God at creation, he was himself God. This is the word who took on, on the form of a man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, John's statements are emphasizing this mystery and reality that Jesus Christ is both truly God and truly man. And this is the wonder of the incarnation. The marvel of Christ's birth. The second verb John uses to describe the incarnation is dwelt. In the original language, this verb conveys the idea of a place of shelter. Like a tent or a hut. This statement signifies, is significant actually, because John says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The literal translation of the verb would say that the word tabernacled when he became flesh. And this description of the Lord here reminds us of what? Reminds us of the tabernacle in the Old Testament or the tent of meeting that we read about in Exodus 33, where God met with Israel. The Lord had previously dwelt among sinful men in the Old Testament, but now, but not in the sinful, in the way that he was dwelling among men during this 
during the incarnation. The fact that during the incarnation, God dwelt among men in a more personal way amplifies this wonder of Christ's birth and life, and especially when he was carrying out his three-year ministry. And this, is, this was no small thing, brothers and sisters. Because as Christ carried out His ministry, the glorious presence of deity was embodied in Him, resembling God's presence like in the Old Testament, but in a more profound manner. Now His presence wasn't in a tent as in the Old Testament, but in the literal, 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 tangible person of Christ. And John wanted his readers to realize that God had been in their midst. And many did not recognize Him. However, while some had rejected Him, others had witnessed His glory and responded to God's visitation in the right way. And this is why John concludes verse 14 by saying that we beheld His glory, glory as the only begotten from the Father. And this brings us to the third verb that John uses to describe the incarnation, the verb beheld, or the word saw. And the third verb beheld literally means to contemplate or to gaze, to gaze admiringly. So when the text says that we beheld his glory, we should ask, well, who were those who beheld his glory? Answer, they were the ones who believed in Christ, those who had seen his glory in person, who had witnessed the miraculous sign Christ performed during his earthly ministry. And the Apostle John was one of those who had beheld the glory of Christ in person. And throughout the Gospel of John, there are eight miraculous signs that, in, that actually structure the entire book. And these signs aim to demonstrate that Christ is the Son of God and that God was in their midst. And what did they see in them? They saw the full character of God. The full character of God's perfections, His attributes in the Lord Jesus Christ. Specifically, they beheld the manifestation of His grace and His truth in the context of salvation. And they did this as they responded in faith to Christ's work at the cross, His death and resurrection. Faith in Christ was the right way to respond to God's manifestation of His grace in Jesus and it was the right way to respond, especially when one was witnessing his miraculous signs. But this is not how most of them responded. And just to illustrate this, it is as if today God were performing the same miracles that Christ did as recorded in the Gospels. The question is, how do you think, how do you think people would respond? How do you think you would respond? to that. Do you think, do you believe people would actually believe the gospel then? Do you think that they would actually forsake their sins and submit to, the, to Christ's authority? 
It's that reality is that uh, if, if God were performing today the same miracles that Christ did, people would continue to reject him. Why? Because of their hard hearts. And the truth is that if they won't listen to the gospel now, they wouldn't, they won't actually, they wouldn't accept the gospel even if God were performing the same miracles today as he did in the New Testament times. There's even actually a parable that illustrates this in the gospel of Luke. The parable of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16. And you can write that down in your, in your notes if you're taking them. We won't be able to we won't have time to go there for now. But you can read it when you go home. Now, for the people that John was writing to, this meant that they were faced with a responsibility. Either to believe in Jesus, that he is the Son of God, the Savior of the world, or to reject him. How were they going to respond to the testimony about Christ that they were hearing from the Apostle John? Of course, later in, in chapter 6, we read that no one can come to Christ unless it had been granted him from the Father. And yet, this did not negate personal responsibility for sin. On the other hand, for believers to whom John was writing, Christ's incarnation genuinely represented the grace of God. The grace of God that they had just read about in John's writing. And their response to the grace of God in Christ was to stand in awe and adoration to the grace of God in Christ. To such invaluable gift of grace. Why? Because the eternal Son of God was in their midst. He was healing the sick, performing other miraculous signs, and ultimately dying on behalf of sinners as a propitiation for their sin. And those who beheld his glory stood in awe and adoration, recognizing the grace of God in Christ. And now you and I, even during this Christmas season, consider how the incarnation should remind you and me of the grace of God. The grace of God that is offered to sinful men through Jesus Christ. And as you hear this message now, you can you also have the responsibility either to believe or reject the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ, the God-man. How are you going to respond to this message? The right way to respond is by repenting of your sins, forsaking them, putting your trust in Christ's finished work at the cross for the forgiveness of your sin. This is the way you need to respond. And so, please resolve to do this in your heart today. It would be the best Christmas that you can have. On the other hand, for believers, the message of the incarnation should rekindle, should rekindle this profound sense of awe that we experienced when we first came to the knowledge of Christ. And the grace of God in salvation. And I want to just encourage you to, to do this. Let this be the memory that fills your heart. 
and your minds as you think about Christmas, surpassing all other thoughts and the busyness of these days that compete for our attention. Let this be what brings you joy during this season. Now, continuing with verse 14, the verse ends by saying that we, they beheld the glory, we beheld the glory, glory like the only begun from the Father, full of grace and truth. And that phrase, full of truth, as John, as John mentions here, refers to not only the truthfulness of God and His character, but also to the truthfulness about the incarnation, the veracity of the gospel message. And this brings us to the second point in our outline that emphasizes this truth. And this is the testimony about Christ. Look at verse 15 uh, with me. And John, and John bore witness about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has been ahead of me, for he existed before me. What the Apostle John did in this portion is not a word, a play on words. Here the Apostle John aims to provide evidence, a confirmation of the veracity of Christ's deity in his incarnation. He anticipates that there might be those who will probably reject his testimony about the deity of Christ. And so he presents the testimony of John the Baptist. For what? To affirm that what he's saying about Christ is indeed true. And John does this in two ways. First, by confirming the testimony about Christ. And second, by confirming the content of the testimony. So first... John confirms the testimony about Christ by introducing us to the witness, a witness, a witness who had been sent from God precisely as a witness to testify about Christ. And this man, of course, was John the Baptist. And this is the same John that had been introduced as a witness in verses 6 through 8 of chapter 1 in the Gospel. And of course, we know that this is what the Apostle John is doing because he explicitly says it in verse 15 when he says, John bore witness about him. The verb to bear witness or to testify has this precise idea in mind. The verb literally means to confirm something on the basis of personal knowledge. And it's, it's the same for us today, isn't it? For example, in a civil trial of court, you will see witnesses that have the intention to what? To confirm the message and attest to the truth. In the case of John the Baptist, his testimony was to confirm the veracity of the deity of Christ. And this is the reason the Apostle John writes that John the Baptist cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me, has been ahead of me, for he existed before me. John the Baptist has been sent, had been sent from God to bear witness to Christ. Secondly, the Apostle John confirmed the witness to the veracity of Christ's incarnation by providing evidence for this testimony. He did this by citing a specific statements made by John the Baptist concerning Christ. In other words, the Apostle John didn't merely say, well, John the Baptist said what I said, so you must believe it. Instead, he quoted the exact words that John the Baptist had proclaimed about the deity of Christ during his, his ministry. 
John the Baptist had preached and declared the eternality of the Son of God. And this was evident by the words that the Apostle John quotes here when he says, for he existed before me. And so, brothers and sisters, this is the only truth that we need to know about the deity of Christ. Christ was not just another man on the face of the earth. He was not just an, a prophet or a created man like any of us. He was the second person of the Trinity. Fully God, fully man. The Word made flesh. And this is the confirmation of the message that John the Baptist bore witness to. And one might assume that there shouldn't have been a need for the Apostle John to provide a testimony to confirm the deity of Christ, given that only a few decades had passed since the Lord Jesus had, had carried out His ministry. But John, in his evangelistic approach, and based on what he said in verse 14 about the Word made flesh, the Apostle John aimed to present the message about the deity of Christ with all its truthfulness. He left no room for doubts. And just as a side note here on, on that, even for us today, it is so crucial to know and to have full confidence on the veracity of the deity of Christ. The Apostle John recognizes this, that either, that either this is true or the entire Christian faith would be false. And this is why even him, the Apostle John, we see him defending him, the deity of Christ when it is attacked by false prophets in, in other letters that he writes. In his first letter he wrote, that he wrote after the gospel, we actually can see this. In his first letter, he warned believers to test the spirits Stating that, stating in chapter 4, that by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God, but is of the Spirit of the Antichrist. And so unlike false prophets and false religions that always attack the deity of Christ, the Apostle John testified as an eyewitness, that Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh, was not just a man. He was fully God, fully man. And so, for us, let us have confident assurance about our faith in the Word made flesh and the Incarnation. Let no one deceive you, brothers and sisters, in your confidence about the deity of Christ. What we're reading in the narrative of, of, uh, about Christ isn't a made-up story. Unlike Christmas stories about Santa Claus and elves that we see in movies and read about in books, the gospel account is the truth about God, the truth about Christ that has been given, has been given to us. And even the fact that you can have faith in Christ, in trusting Him for, the salva for salvation in the grace. Um, this is the grace of God at work in your heart. And this brings us to the third point in our outline. 
the third declaration about the incarnation of Christ that encourages us to that encourage us to stand in awe of Christ, which is the grace of God in Christ. The grace of God in Christ. Look at verse six, verses sixteen and seventeen with me. For the fullness for his from for of his fullness we have all received in grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. In the incarnation, God demonstrated his superabundance of grace towards believers. But what does this exactly mean in our text? Well, first, the word fullness that we see there in the text, with that word, the Apostle John refers back to the essence of the Godhead and the the essence of all his attributes when the second person of the Trinity tabernacled in the incarnate word. This this is the the presence of, of deity that was embodied in Christ. And remember that unlike the Old Testament, where God's presence was in a tent, now in the New Testament, it was the literal, tangible person of Christ. And they had, believed, they had beheld His glory. And so for this reason, all believers who had been recipients of God's grace in salvation, and who had seen and beheld His glory in the incarnate Word were now included and are now included in the we mentioned that that is mentioned here as the ones who had received the fullness of God's grace in Jesus Christ. The apostle speaks of this reality as well as as he prays for the Ephesian believers in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3. And as a matter of fact, I want us to, to go there for a moment. Turn there to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him in love, by predestining us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He graciously bestowed on us in the Beloved. In Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our transgressions according to the riches of His grace, which He caused to abund to us in all wisdom and insight. And insight. Now back to John chapter 1, verse 17. Let's continue to look at the second phrase that John says here, taking a talking about the superabundance of God's grace towards believers. He says, and with the phrase and grace upon grace that we read there in, in verse 17, I'm sorry, 16, 
What is John doing there? He is explaining or he explains what is meant by this actually in, in verse 17. In verse 17. How, is, how, how does he do that? He does it by actually citing the, making reference to the law and then contrasting it with the grace of God. Verse 17 says, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The reason they had received grace upon grace is that uh, even in the law that was given through Moses, that law was considered a grace from God. And in the Old Testament, the law was meant to point them to a Savior by showing them their sinfulness. However, the law was insufficient in providing a Savior who could redeem them from that sinfulness. On the other hand, Contrary to the law, both the grace and the truth of God came through Jesus Christ. And what's interesting here is that for the first time in the book, John explicitly mentions the name of the word made flesh, which is Jesus Christ. The very name that Joseph was instructed by an angel to give to Jesus. Why? Because he is the one who was going to save his people from their sins. Now, what does this mean for us? You might ask. Answer. It means that we, who are also believers, partake of the fullness of God's grace in Jesus Christ. You know, we, we, we get excited when we get gifts. Especially when, when we get gifts that reminds us that we do not deserve them, either because of its value or the abundance in the gift. Now, if we, if we get excited when we get gifts that are perishable, how much should we rejoice at the gift of salvation through our Savior Jesus Christ? This surpasses any gift that you can think of. There's, and there's nothing that you, you could have done to reserve it. And yet we see God's superabundance of grace towards believers in the incarnate word. This is the reason you and I should be, should be in, in awe and stand in awe at the incarnate word. The Lord Jesus Christ. And this brings us to our fourth and last point this morning. The explanation of God in Christ. Look at verse 18 with me. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. John concludes this section of the prologue with an astounding statement that we just read. The fact that no one has seen God at any time. In other words, no one had seen God in all His glory. Not even Moses was permitted to see God when He spoke to him in the Old Testament. You can read about that in Exodus 33. And why? Why was He not permitted? Because no man can see God and live. However, the only begotten Son of God he has explained God like nobody else has or could. 
And John uses the word exegomite in the original Greek, which means to explain or to reveal something. And in fact, this is where the word exegesis comes from. This is just to say that this is exactly what we have in Christ. A true explanation, a true representation of God's nature. I love how the author of Hebrews describes, describes Christ as the one who explained the nature of God. Hebrews 1.3 says, He, meaning Christ, He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature, upholding all things by the power of His word. You know, I've heard the question also. I've heard people ask the question, how can they know God better? Would you like to know God better? If so, know the Lord, the, the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will know, you will know who God is and how He's like. And even though it is impossible to know God completely. In Christ, we can see God's glory revealed to us in Him and genuinely worship Him. So as we have so far encountered in the past, in this portion of Scripture, we've encountered these four profound declarations about the wonder of Christ. And I pray this morning that this may lead you and I to worship and adoration the God who made himself um, exp- revealed himself in Christ. And I want us to, to leave you to think about that this Christmas season. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we are in awe. We are in awe of what you have done in the person and work, the Lord Jesus Christ. How the God, how God the Son took on the form of a man, without emptying His divinity. This is beyond our comprehension. But we thank you for the grace that you have now made available to us. Because of your son. And for this we thank you. And we praise you this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.